Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to the 2023 kickoff edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Whether it is your first time listening in or you've tuned in before, we are so honored and thrilled that you found yourself here, given the wide array of podcast offerings out there today. And if you like what you hear, please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you find your podcast. My team and I make this show for you, for listeners all over the world who might be seeking inspiration, hope, or are interested in hearing diverse stories, narratives, and perspectives from the South Asian diaspora. That is why I am so incredibly delighted that to kick off this new year, we are bringing you a conversation with a woman who, in my humble opinion, is the embodiment of resilience, inspiration, and courage. We are thrilled to welcome back a great friend of the show and newly sworn in Kansas State Senator and Manhattan County Commissioner Usha Reddy. Usha has served on the Manhattan City Commission of Kansas since 2013 and served twice as mayor. Previously, she was an educator in Manhattan Public Schools, where she served a term as president of their National Education Association chapter. She holds bachelor's degrees in psychology and elementary education and earned her master's degree in educational leadership from Kansas State University. Usha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we are so honored and thrilled to welcome you back and huge congratulations to you for being sworn in as the new senator for the state of Kansas. So really want to start out by congratulating you on all of that. Yeah, thank you. It's been a really quick turnaround and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, before we dive into some questions for you, I always like to start out my interviews with guests, many of whom are from India or another country of origin, about their immigrant journey to this country and how that trajectory and experience may have impacted you and continues to do so across all areas of your life. And so if you wouldn't mind starting there, that would be wonderful. Sure. So... You know, I came to the United States in 1973 uh, when I was eight years old, and uh, we lived mostly in Ohio. It's been an interesting experience as an immigrant woman. I mean, at that time, also being a young girl, did not knowing hardly any English, my mother not speaking any English as well. So, you know, at home, we were told mostly to speak in English so we can learn it better. But thank God my mother spoke our native language, which is Telugu. So I was able to retain both my languages as English and Telugu. So that's helped me quite a bit. I think as I moved on in my education career, it's been pretty turbulent. I wasn't always a great student. And I think there is that stereotype of Indians being straight A students and going into medicine or engineering or something like that. I have definitely taken a different path 
I think one thing my foundation of immigration has instilled in me is a good work ethic, the resilience part of it, persistent and uh, adapting to my environment and being flexible. So if anything should happen, I should be able to be flexible and uh, move on with life instead of being stagnant in one area or one specific point in my life. So that's been extremely helpful. My grandparents are a big part of my life as well. I look at how they raised me without you know much education themselves, but wisdom is very different than education. So I carry that with me wherever I go and think of them often. And I've always been interested in politics. I became a naturalized citizen in 1987, and that's helped me a lot where I was, when you have to take a test to become a citizen of the United States, it makes you value it a lot more. Then voted in 1988, I believe, um, in my first election. Public school teacher, I was the only woman of from Indian origin, but also the only woman of color in, in most of my teaching fields. And that's helped my students. I still wear a bindi. I still wear Indian clothes to school and my kids would appreciate it. Being young, they don't know any difference. So it was new to them and exciting to them, but they were also took out a lot of barriers or any kind of fear factors in their life as far as uh, being exposed to someone who's non-white. But I've moved on, like I said, into education, but was NEA, our teachers union president for a few years. And then I've developed uh, more knowledge of my community and wanted to run for office. So I ended up on the city commission. I'm in my third term there. And now I am uh, the Kansas Senate, state Senate, uh, representing District 22. And that just happened uh, in the past two weeks, mainly because our senator had retired. And I said, okay, I think this is something I would like to do and worked hard for those votes. And here I am fulfilling another chapter in my life. And I hope I'm successful at it as well. Well, boy, that is really remarkable. And I always say things come full circle. And we'll talk about that. You had to give up your senatorial mm-hmm. campaign previously because of the pandemic. And right, we're going right. to talk about your leadership amidst that. And if we pause and think about that journey you just outlined, which I often do after speaking to phenomenal guests like yourself, it is so inspiring. You came here as an eight-year-old girl from India. And I have to add, no familial political connections. You went right. on to become mayor, mm-hmm. city commissioner, and now Kansas State Senator. Now, rest assured that that journey has not always been easy. You kind of alluded to that ever so slightly just now. And many listeners may not be aware that you are also universally acclaimed for your exemplary courage after revealing in a radio interview a couple of years mm-hmm. ago that you were raped as a child by your father while living in Ohio. You shared this deeply personal story with the hope that it might inspire other victims of sexual abuse or survivors to come forward. And, and to quote you directly, quote, everything I've ever done in my life was to put this behind me and to move forward. People never thought of me as a victim of sorts in this instance, but that is the case. This happened to me between the ages of 10 and 16, end quote. Now, that is really poignant and heavy. But let's think about the courage it took to come forward and coming forward, how you looked right in the face of victim blaming and said, nope, not here, not now, not ever. And I know in past interviews, you mentioned coming forward took a big burden off of your shoulders. So is there anything else you want to share about how perhaps that has helped you to know that lives were changed. They will be again as a result of this interview, somebody who hears the story for the better when you come out with this disclosure. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because 
you just never know the where life takes you. And um, so one of the most interesting that's happened, like, I, you know, I have a strong faith and God has uh, his own plans uh, in your life. So I was sworn in into the Kansas Senate Wednesday of last week. And Thursday of last week, I was a co-sponsor on removing the statute of limitations in the state of Kansas for sexual assault and sexual violence. And uh, that happened because the senator who was sponsoring, who was um, coming up working on that bill in the past had reached out to me when she heard my story about my dad and, and what had happened to me and getting an indictment and a conviction and incarceration and felt like I would provide good testimony. So I had a chance to do that a few years ago. And then I was able to now sponsor a bill and more have more of an impact in a community where I let other survivors, we did a press release, press conference last Thursday, where other survivors were speaking to this issue. And now I'm in the background holding the foundation to support them so that they have a path forward to recovery or just a process where they can uh, hold people accountable, uh, ones that violated them in a very uh, significant manner. So I think you know, it just came like full circle and I'm still going to be working hard throughout my life so it doesn't happen to other women and men as well. But it's definitely been something I would not have anticipated that me saying something a few years ago about my dad, revealing it as traumatic as it was to experience it, but then to speak about it and then have results come where my dad was held accountable. And then a few years later, actually working on bills to help other survivors Auto, people automatically think, well, I think in Kansas, you have to be up to 21 or 18. After that, you can't do much about it, much about it anymore. But by the time you're 18 and 21, you're still fairly young and still processing things. I was 50 something before the time I was able to come open with it. So you need to remove the statute of limitations because as children grow into older adults and have enough capacity, strength and financial backing and a support system, only then can they speak about it. And I think that's extremely important. And that's a lesson I've learned as I grew into it, how important it was. So now I'm making a difference at a different level with actual legislation. So I'm very, very proud of it. It's not the path I've chosen for myself, but it was the path I was given. Uh, I have chills just listening to you because what a full circle story. And as you stated, survivors and, and victims, they don't have, have a statute of limitations on what this does to their life. And so I really applaud you for that and that legislative action that you're taking. But I think resilience and strength are really two adjectives that can describe you in your past leadership roles as mayor, county commissioner, and now your present role as senator. Because if we take a look back at your tenure, you experienced firsthand unprecedented challenges posed by the pandemic. And you were in the forefront of all of that as a mayor. I might mm -hmm. add one of the few female leaders in this country in the position of mayor during the pandemic. Now, what's very notable about this is that in your leadership role as a woman of color, you were able to quickly link diversity, equity, and inclusion to the pandemic and understand that the black community in Manhattan, Kansas, and across the state was disparately affected in a negative way as compared to others. And we saw this across the country, of course. This includes Native American and, and indigenous people as well. And you also trace this beyond healthcare. And when you talked about this in one of our former interviews, as a former teacher yourself, you saw that BIPOC children were being affected deleteriously 
via the education system, as many of those folks don't have Wi-Fi service at home or a laptop. And yet that was the almost universally accepted modality of teaching during the pandemic. And what resulted in your estimation, and we discussed this before, is that moms and dads had to work in their day-to-day jobs and then also teach their children. Women were dramatically affected as they were tasked, not only with having to do their day-to-day jobs and remote teaching of their child, they also had to continue with all the domestic duties they've done in the past. And we saw this in India in particular and other third world countries where this brings me to an observation and my next question for you. The Mm -hmm. observation, which I've come to after doing a plethora of interviews with the diverse candidates and elected officials from our diaspora and speaking with you, is that representation matters. But for you, Usha Reddy, would there have been But for you, would there have been a subsequent task force created around DEI? I know you spearheaded that and a distinct focus on these inequities. I would have to say no. And so I welcome comments on all this. But this is so exciting for the state of Kansas and your role as state senator, because you can now bring that same lens and perspective to the state level. So welcome your input on all of that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Sonia. So, yeah, when I was mayor... I did create the task force, and that happened because that was also the same time that the George Floyd incident happened. And then uh, when we were getting these funds from the federal government for small businesses or for schools or for broadband, whatever it was, the marginalized communities didn't have access to it. They didn't have access to capital or to banks. They didn't have access to broadband. And you're absolutely right. Families that had to teach at home even if they had the all the technology in place, they still had to do their own jobs in addition to teaching their children. And it was taking a toll on a lot of parents and especially populations that are highly disadvantaged, whether because they only had one room and all of them had to share one or two rooms to do their job on Zoom and also teach their kids on their other, uh, whether it's their phones or laptops. And uh, it just wasn't a good living environment. And during that time, we also felt it in the healthcare field A lot of hospitals or even private doctors were only seeing limited patients or were canceling appointments. And of course, if you have, if you were taking preventive care or anything, you were missing those mammogram exams or the exams where they do your blood tests and such. So a lot of things were happening around us, which were just isolating, but having a traumatic impact on people of color, people of poverty and people with very few resources. When I created the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Task Force, even that with a five-person city commission, only three people voted for it. And it happened during my term. And I felt it was extremely important because there was so much negative relationships, whether it's with the Riley County Police Department or with the uh, healthcare field, the school district, and government officials. There was so much distrust, and but so much money was being funneled to all these agencies, but people who needed it the most we're not getting it, even from the Department of Labor for unemployment benefits. There was just a massive technology breakdown at our state level for people that were applying for unemployment benefits because now so many people were laid off because so many restaurants were closed and so many other agencies were closed. So all of this was happening really quickly, really uh, fast, and talking to people and government agencies all day long, 24-7. And there was a need uh, that we needed a diversity, equity, inclusion task force Now that all of these problems have surfaced to a point where we can actually recognize them, 
So I put, I believe it was 25 people on this task force from all areas of life, and they gave us recommendations, which we later adopted for the city of Manhattan. But that would not have happened under a different person's tenure because, again, like I said, it was passed just by a 3-2 vote. So I'm glad we, we were able to do that. And even in the uh, Kansas, as a legislator now, as senator in the Kansas state legislature, I believe I am the first woman, Indian woman, Indian period, in the Senate for the state of Kansas. So navigating that field as a woman of color, but also bringing forth all of the knowledge I've had and experiences to the table definitely provides a different lens when I make policy decisions. And I think that's extremely important. You know, when I first, I was just talking to somebody the other day who was a legislator, and he said something to the effect, you know, you don't just represent minorities, you represent everybody. And of course, I represent everybody. In the city of Manhattan, I represented everybody. So of course, as a state senator, I'm going to represent all my constituents. However, the same question is not asked to a white male. It's never said, you know, you don't just represent white men, you represent everybody. So that reverse question is never asked. Why would it be assumed that I wouldn't represent everybody? Yeah, my skin is different and I am different looking. But just the assumption that I'm only going to carry minority issues is inappropriate and not accurate. Just like a white men are never asked, make sure you take care of all the diversity people, all diverse people in your community and not just white males. So I think that's the type of language we need to shift and change. And, you know, he also pointed out that, oh, you know, you're not really a woman of color, you're actually Caucasian. And that really upset me. So he looked it up on Wikipedia. And certainly there, it says like Caucasian or something as far as Indians. But I, I felt like when I walk in a room, they don't see a white woman. They don't see a white man. They see a brown-skinned girl. And I embrace it. And everywhere I go, it's my identity. I'm proud of it. But I, and I'm pretty sure that's what everybody else sees. They don't see a Caucasian woman. So the, it's even that language and that, that idea that we're still breaking down, even at this level, which is okay. I feel like I'm put in this position to break those barriers, but also carry policies forward that bring about, take care of the inequities in our communities. I like a good challenge and I like the fight I'm in. And I like to know that I'm going to work with a lot of people to bring resources to communities that need it the most. There's a lot of communities that already have it, but a lot of communities uh, in my position that don't have access to it. So I think that's what I bring to the table that I'm really looking forward to. Well, there's no question about that. And I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when you had this conversation. I want to apologize on this person's behalf to you. And yet exactly what you're there for, representation matters. And he had no idea who he was dealing with when he made those statements. But I am so excited to introduce you to listeners or those who have listened to you before and, and just so excited about this senatorial position in the state of Kansas. Now, last year, I had the opportunity to interview Sarah Shaw from impact.org, which I know you are very familiar with. And I was blown away by the API outreach, and that's Asian American Pacific Islander outreach that's being done by the Democratic Party, the results of which have been credited with making a huge difference in, for example, the Georgia election. Now, this is important because impact went to WhatsApp, Patel Brothers, which is a very popular South Asian grocery store across the U.S., they had a Bollywood event, and they really started to do tailored outreach to woo the Indian American and South Asian vote. 
I was blown away by this because it's really never happened before. And to recognize that we are not a monolith, the Asian American Pacific Islander group in this country, or really globally, is not a monolith. Within the umbrella of Asian, there's incredible diversity. We have seen this perspective mirrored in the DNC. And my hat goes off to all of these groups because we are still not seeing this from the Republican Party, for example, in any way, shape, or form. Now, it might be fair to say that Republicans have some internal philosophical differences that are perhaps dividing their party right now. But what a missed opportunity for them and other groups to not see our community and the uniqueness of its voters. And you just stated somebody thought that Indians were Caucasian. Absolutely not. I would say that groups that um, overlook our our diaspora and, and our community they'll lose that contingency of voters all day long if they continue to be blind to all of this. So I want to know if you had anything to comment on that. And then based on your leadership in Kansas's DNC, or and now in your role as state senator, what else you might have to add? Yeah, as a DNC committee woman, you're absolutely right. I was at uh, their conference last year, and they have one coming up here in Philadelphia in the next few weeks. The Asian American Pacific Islander Caucus for the Democratic National Committee is very alive and very committed to make sure we have representation at all levels. And fortunately, in the Biden administration, we do. I mean, our vice president is a prime example of that. But they've also made sure that there are, there's good representation in all of their departments. So I feel very proud to be a part of that organization. And it definitely takes a lot of effort and work to get into those areas that we are not familiar with. But I'm glad we are building a structure to make sure we are more available and accessible to be in those areas. And yeah, Impact is doing a good job. And there's a lot of now organizations specifically tailored to getting more Asian Americans involved in politics and policymaking at all levels of government, from your school boards to your city councils to college board, board of regents, all kinds of areas. Like I said, it's not something that's unique to Indians that we don't feel we want to be apolitical. Uh, but we realize now that that's actually where we need to be. And you're right, Asians have a huge array of areas we come from, whether it's from uh, different countries, different religions. There's so many, you can't just pigeonhole ourselves into one category because there's so, it's so vast, and so dynamic and so diverse in and of itself. I think the DNC leadership, like I said, has invested not only people, but funds into doing that. It takes a lot of money and a lot of organization and a lot of talent and determination when you want to move something forward. So certainly something like this didn't happen overnight. These things are built over years, if not decades, to make this happen. But when you see leadership such as uh, Kamala Harris or even me now as senator, it opens that door for others to follow. So they're not always the first ones. We still continue to have a lot of firsts, but we are bringing in more and more people with us as we move, uh, remove some of those barriers, which is an exciting place to be. I can't speak much for the Republican Party. All I can speak to is I haven't seen the same motivation and uh, innovative strategies to onboard people from different uh, diverse communities. So, you know, that's something they have to work on. But I think we are getting to a point where more people are being accepting in the Democratic Party. It certainly helped me be to where I'm at, because I, I didn't just come here by myself. I came here on the shoulders of many, and many women. You know, you have to have a support group of a woman that, whether it's white woman, or whether it's Hispanic, or whatever it is, 
just women alone coming into the forefront of leadership is pretty huge. And then women of color coming into leadership positions is even more unique. And But, you know, we always have to work 100 times harder. That's just a given. So I think that needs to be always something that we just need to understand. You can't just walk in and expect people to follow you. You really have to earn their trust and earn their confidence because you will always be held to a different level of standards. And I'm pretty sure our community can handle it. And I think that's what the DNC intends to do is build in a lot of support systems so that we are successful. And there are no such thing as failures because we'll continue to learn from those as well. Wow, that is that's a great sentiment. No such thing as failure, but rather a learning opportunity. You certainly don't hear that from the RNC. Now, I want to ask you about what motivated you to enter the world of public policy and what you might say to voters in this country of all ages and backgrounds. Now, there is so much vitriol in politics and division along party lines, and some of that is really historically nothing new. But I have to attest that even doing this podcast can be just as exhausting as it is hopeful because the challenges to democracy in this country and around the world are very real. And we can no longer presume that what happens in another country isn't going to directly affect us anymore. The pandemic blew that concept out of the water. But even the war in Ukraine is impacting global markets and economies so profoundly. But especially for first or second generation immigrants here that might be asking themselves, why bother voting or getting engaged in politics at the local, state or federal level? I came to the U.S. for the opportunities. I don't want to be political. What would you say to those voters and and those perhaps in your home state of Kansas who are frustrated and maybe even apathetic about politics and voting? Yeah, great question. There's a lot of apathy, not just in the immigrant population, but even in the uh, citizenship that's here in the United States. I think the national level of uh, discontent, the meanness that's happening, and social media has really put a lot of challenges on people that want to take public office or public policy. You know, the noise on social media is so loud, but unfortunately, it's just a few. You know, it's just a few voices that are that loud and that angry and trying to rally their base. So if you get off of Twitter or you get off of uh, Facebook or whatever it is you might be on, we have to understand these platforms are there to get money. They're trying to sell ads. They're trying to build an audience. It's not issues based. It's not always truth based even, but it's about the bottom line, which is revenue. And so social media platforms are there for revenue and they will push out whatever they can to get that. And people know that. If anybody's watched me, they know that I don't do that type of stuff uh, as far as yelling at each other or putting out negative things on any of my social media pages. A lot of politicians actually don't behave nasty as we see some of these other ones uh, that are there all the time. But because of that, then you have the 24-7 news channels, whether it's MSNBC or whether it's Fox. Because it's 24-7, everything seems like a pretty big deal. And there are a lot of retired folks or other folks in general that they just watch that all day, every day. And it's a type of brainwashing where it's not good for the soul. And you lose track of what is good for the community. And you kind of make generalizations, which is really not good for anybody and not good for your mental health. But I highly think people that are involved in public policy, you need to see what motivates you. 
if it's a school issue for, uh, you know, if it's a certain curriculum you're not happy about, or maybe it's something in your community where they're putting up too much zones on how you want to build a house, or maybe you don't like something that a certain organization is doing, something has to motivate you to say, I want to make a difference. I want to go onto this uh, board or policy because I want to make a change. And you end up going on to advisory boards, whether it's the library advisory board or a airport advisory board, you start off volunteering there and you pick a passion, uh, uh, something that motivates you to do make changes. And then you decide to run for office and you have to be with people that support what you're doing. And also you have to have thick skin because politics, when you're running for office, it's about winning. And sometimes uh, winning an election is not always going to be pretty. It is a ton of hard work. Uh, but I think if you have strong supporters, you would be able to do it. But it definitely depends on what you're inspired to do. The reason we need to do this and the reason to be involved is we have fewer immigrants coming to the United States because policies that were implemented anti-immigration or anti-being at the border or refugees coming here. We have a lot of policies that work against women. So whether you're pro-choice, there's a lot of legislation right now that's against you, a woman being able to make a decision that's good for her own body and for her own family. Your rights are being taken away. So you shouldn't, your children shouldn't have fewer rights than you when you started this. As a woman, it took a long time for women to get the right to vote. We shouldn't have fewer places where we can vote. We should have more. So these are the things that are adherent to a productive democracy that works for everybody where your rights are being taken away, you're going to have less rights, fewer rights than generations before. And that's why it's critical. If they're removing funds from your public school system for other entities or removing funds from your special education programs to give to other entities, that is uh, creating an injustice to the immigration population and vulnerable populations or people that may not have enough resources. So you're creating that divide between the haves and the have-nots. So the people with money and in power will always make rules that benefit them. And they will never end up in jail because they also have the money to hire great attorneys. And if they, if that divide gets more and more uh, widespread between the haves and the have-nots, you are going to suffer. So you're always going to be living either paycheck to paycheck, may not have enough to put away for retirement, may not be able to afford college tuition fees for your children. Your children may decide not to have children or maybe they can't buy a house or buy cars because now they have to pay off high student loans. All of that didn't happen by itself. All of that happened because somebody in public policy is making decisions for you because there was a certain group of people that decided politics doesn't matter. It's not going to affect my life, so I'm not going to vote. Everything is political, and we need to understand every single thing from putting on your seatbelt to going to the grocery store to grocery store to buy groceries, every single thing is political. And unless we recognize it, we can't see the change that we can make as public policymakers or simply by voting. I think those are it's not a good time to be apathetic because like I said, everything is political and we just have to recognize that. And we are not there where we can recognize it just yet. Well, that's certainly motivational. And I have to say that one of my first interviews with you was during Trump's presidency and included several Indian American women who identified themselves as proud Hindus and proud Republicans. Now, though politics has always included challenges across party lines, I think it would be wholly agreed upon that former President Trump took things to a new level of vitriol. 
So I have to ask you, you were county commissioner and mayor during that time period and now living in the Biden-Harris administration. What do you observe is uniquely different and refreshing for you as a legislator? You sort of alluded to it a little bit, but I know in a past interview with me, you mentioned we need not wake up to a new controversy or trauma every day, whereby we check our Twitter feed to see the former president's latest tweet and deal with the fallout. Now, can you illuminate us on what else has changed for Americans, and especially now, you know, as a legislator at the local and state level? Sure. Well, I like boring politics. And right now, it it is kind of where it should be. You know, we're not living, having major anxiety attacks every day or living through trauma every day. We're living in a place where we're actually discussing policies. Is the bill they did for the economy on transportation or the infrastructure bill or the inflation reduction bill. These are the things we should actually be talking about. And that's that's where a president should be. That's where local government should be, is talking about policies. So even though there's still attacks on people, and even on groups of communities of people, it's that that shouting has decreased dramatically. And it's back to where we are, like I said, talking about policies or funding issues or inflation or can I buy a house and things like that as opposed to being hateful towards each other because of our skin color or because of where we live or the type of degree we have or because of our gender. That voice is still there, of course, but it's not elevated anymore. It's more muted and it's more in just a a few communities here and there where that's still taking place. So with that gone, we're actually having um, discussions that are relevant to people about putting you know, food on the table or paying their taxes or paying their bills or college or whatever it might be. So that's been a huge shift, that hateful language about my own neighbor being a different color or being racism every day or guns and violence and uh, just getting rid of constitutional amendments and laws just to benefit one sector as opposed to the entire community. So uh, that piece, like I said, has been uh, instrumental in the way we live our lives. I believe there's less stress in my community. I believe people are able to focus on what they want to do with their lives as opposed to wondering what's happening at the federal level that's going to dismantle their own life own life as they see it every day. I think there's always going to be challenges as the presidential elections come and go, even next year. And as far as my own spot in the legislature, I see that that type of vitriol almost uh, just here and there. I don't expect everybody to fall in love with me. I don't expect myself to fall in love with everybody. But I think there's more civil discourse than ever before. Not than ever before. More civil discourse than in the Trump era. I think there is room for more discussion. We may still not agree, but we're we're able to do it more uh, with more civility. And that's important because our children are watching us. Uh, Future generations that might want to run for office are watching us. And we need to be role models, even if we disagree. And I believe that's what we're doing now than we did in the in the previous administration, which is extremely important for good public policy and doing what's good for your community. Well, I definitely concur with you on that. And I cannot believe that we are approaching the end of our time together. But I have to ask you, as you look forward as Kansas State Senator and County Commissioner, What are you most looking forward to and excited about? And for anyone listening right now who might be inspired by our conversation and it would be hard not to be, what would you say to them about not giving up or being defined by a singular life experience or trauma? 
you are a living hero or Shiro, S-H-E-R-O to me, but really welcome your thoughts on all of that as we close out. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, that's a city commissioner and state senator, which is fine. So I think, you know, everybody has their own path. And I think while my trauma has been extremely devastating to me, everybody has to deal with trauma their own way. You know, some people may never want to speak about it, which should be okay. Uh, Some people may want to speak about it and seek therapy and find good resources to help them uh, live through it. And that, that should be okay. What you need is a good support system. Even if you just have one person that believes in you, that's extremely important. I think without that, it's hard to do anything. We can be inspired and have a drive like there's, you know, like nothing else matters. But if you have one person that truly believes in you, you can conquer the world. And you need to find that one person. And you need to trust your instincts. You know, I haven't always been good at that until recently. But if you hear that voice in you saying, maybe I should do this, or maybe that's wrong, listen to it right away. Don't deny it. And if you follow your instincts, which has paid off for me, I think I've learned to trust them more. Whereas in the past, I didn't trust them as much. It's easy to say, believe in yourself and everything will be fine, work hard. But there's more to it. People have to be in a good good space, regardless of how old they are, to also take on the negativity that will come with any decision you make. You won't always have people that love your decisions. You may actually have more people that hate your decision than love your decision. And you need to have thick skin and be true to yourself. I think if you're true to yourself, regardless of what the world may think of you, you have one life and it's your life and you need to live it for you. Nobody else is going to be able to make you happy unless you find that happiness within yourself. And I think that's the the most I can say. It's easier said than done. But believe me, once you find out that you only have that one life between the day you are born and the day you die, how are you going to fill out that hyphen? And what experiences are going to be put in there? People are going to remember you for a short term after you are no longer on this planet. So live the life you want to live with your own aspirations, with the people you want to live with. And you're not obligated to anybody. You're not obligated to do anything for your culture for your own family, if they've ever been mistreating you, you're not obligated to be the person you don't want to be. Uh, So do what makes you happy and believe in yourself and your choices. It's going to be hard, but I think you can do it. And I'm only, I'm 57 and I think that's still young and I still don't know what the rest of my future brings for me, but I'm sure there'll be other challenges I'll be facing, but I know that I'll be able to conquer them and be successful at the end. But yeah, give yourself time give yourself some reassurance and build yourself a support system of at least one person that believes in you. Well, that is so incredibly beautiful. And I think you really are the American dream in the embodiment, if I may say so. Such a remarkable story. And I have to say that to this day, you not only inspire me, but anybody listening, please take a look at Usha's story. Understand that anything is possible. And it's rather uh, fitting that we're recording this on the day that we honor the Reverend Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States. And, and I think one of his quotes is really applicable to how you've lived your life. And it states, quote, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? End quote. And boy, I, I really think that that 
that quote pertains to you and how you are living your life and inspiring others. And really cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Senator Usha Reddy. (laughs) Thank you, Sonia. It's been a pleasure to join you and do this podcast. And, um, you know, your audience is wonderful. And uh, sure, definitely reach out to me if you all need anything or if you'd like to talk. I'm uh, easily accessible. That means so much. And we will have you back. We want to hear the hard work that you're going to be doing in the state Senate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.